0: Well, I've got um, a sermon for you guys tonight that comes out of Genesis chapter 5. We're going to go through one whole chapter of Genesis tonight. Genesis chapter 5. Now, probably the sermon is going to be a little shorter than usual because this is one of those glorious chapters in the Bible that's entirely made up of a genealogical record. How many of y'all, when you do your chronological Bible reading, Or whatever other way you read through Scripture, when you get to the genealogical chapters, are you like, yes! Yes, this is the day right here. This is the day the Lord hath made, and I'm reading a genealogical chapter. Anybody? Well, it may not be the most exciting chapter in the book of Genesis, but there are some spiritual Elements and principles that we're going to pull out of this chapter. But I think probably um, we'll be finished a little early this evening. So let's jump right into it. We're going to talk about Adam's family line. Genesis chapter 5. If you remember at the end of Genesis chapter 4, Moses wrote about Cain's line, his family line. He talked about who was born from him and him and him down and so forth. Do you remember what? Cain's family was known for that what were some of the, what was the kind of the biggest thing they were that was listed killing people that, wrong. killing people that wrong that's what they were known for if you go back and read it it said I one, uh, uh was it Lamech I don't have it in front of me Lamech killed somebody for hurting him and then what did he say I killed somebody I killed a boy for saying something wrong where is it okay It's Genesis chapter 4. Here we go. For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. He killed a boy for striking him. And that's what his line was known for. And then now we're in chapter 5, and we're going to follow the genealogical line of Adam to Seth and so on. Now, I want to give you a little bit of introduction. What I want you to think about tonight, what I think we're going to learn from this text, is our family history influences our life so your ancestors that came before you influence you and the way you live your life influences those who come after you now they could be legitimate people in a genealogical line that are born from you or they could be uh, people that you influence through the way you live and that could be spiritual in nature friends and family and, and co-workers and so forth but my family is known for something I think the guys upstairs have a picture you see that picture That's three generations of dryer right there. The one, the little boy on the far right is me. And then the guy behind that little boy is my dad. And then next to my dad is my grandpa. And so as far back as I can tell, the dryers are a fishing people. We love to fish. And I think we're pretty good at fishing. So the boat you see behind them um, is one of the many boats that we had in our family. We were on the Mississippi River, and so the boats we had were always aluminum, flat nosed river boats. They were made, they're very stable, and they were made for the river. And so that was like the one we had when I was real young. And I remember many a summer uh, fishing on the river with those two guys right there. And man, I love to listen to them bicker about who had the better lure. Um, one thing, my grandpa would always uh, blame my dad of, of putting gasoline on his fishing line. Carl, does Jack ever do that to you? Put gasoline on your fishing line so you don't catch any fish? My grandpa used to accuse my dad of doing that, and it was hilarious. And they would bicker, but you know they loved each other, and, and I was kind of sitting right in the middle of that. That you see right there is actually, the, that's uh, salmon from a trip up to, um, I think that was Canada or northern Minnesota, um, a big old thing of salmon. So that's my family. And we we were known for fishing. And it's funny because um, I didn't really know I loved it so much until I got a little older and then realized, like, man, I really do love fishing. And now, guess who's learned how to fish in my family? My daughters. And they love it to varying degrees. Some of them love it more than others, but they all go and they all know how to do it. So that's something that my family's kind of known for. You know, think of what your family's known for. And the the point of what we're going to study here as we think about genealogical lines and the people that came before and after us is that we have a tremendous opportunity to influence not only ourselves, but those who come after us. Maybe not even necessarily just one generation, but two, three, four generations down. What you do with your life, more importantly, what you do with the gospel and how you live for Christ, not only influences you, but it influences people two and three and four generations after you. And so that's what we're going to see today. So this particular chapter in Genesis chapter 5 explains the genealogical line through which all modern people have come. The writer of Genesis explains a fruitful family line of Cain in chapter 4. Now, Adam's son Seth's family line is recorded from this point on. So Cain's line is forgotten and no longer mentioned. Now we move on here from Adam to Seth and down. And then, of course, after Noah, that's where all modern humanity comes from, because of the flood. A genealogical record such as this one might feel like an uninteresting passage of Scripture for our study, but it contains, a lot, it contains a lot of important truths. Now, Matthews, a scholar I often read when I study Genesis, has four things that he says this particular chapter um, should influence us. Um, and he writes this. First, it, prevents, or it presents a convincing case for the interconnectedness of all mankind and the hope for universal blessing. Since the genealogy takes us from the beginnings of Adam to the diluvian world of Noah, that word diluvian means flood, Um, the flood world of Noah, who's considered the new Adam. Number two, it demonstrates the result of Adam's sin, and despite this harsh reality, the continuation of God's promise of preservation through the gift of procreation. Number three, it contributes to the unfolding motif of conflict as anticipated in Genesis 3.15, where there is rivalry between an unrighteous offspring and a righteous lineage reflected by the genealogies of chapter 4 and chapter 5. That's Cain and Seth. As well as Genesis 6.1-8, which contrasts Noah and uh, with the unrighteous, ungodly generation that he lived in, if you remember that. Number four. This genealogy shows the evolution and universality of human wickedness, which deserves God's angry reprisal. We see that in Genesis 6. But again, despite this, the hope that rests in God's favor toward Noah. So let's look in this genealogy, and we'll kind of mine some spiritual truths from it as we go. First, we're going to look at creation and the blessing. So these first two verses are sort of an introduction to the genealogical line, Um, And introduces what's going to come next. Look at verse 1. It says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. So Moses probably used some kind of extra biblical document, some kind of written genealogical document to write this. And that's what we gather from the fact that he says, This is the book of the generations of Noah and it describes Adam's genealogical record. Now, there's other places in the Old Testament when writers used uninspired documents to explain things. For instance, Numbers chapter 21 verse 14 describes the book of the wars of the Lord, and Joshua 10:13 talks about the book of Jasher. And later also further on in the New Testament, they talk about the book of Enoch. And so those books are not inspired books that are included in the Word, but the Bible's authors use those uh, for factual knowledge that would have been handed down in those documents. So this is what he's referring to here. So verse 1 continues on. He says, In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them, and he named them man in the day when they were created. Moses draws attention back to the creation story that we studied at length, coming from Genesis chapter 1. His description of creation links this genealogical report to God's creation. And that's significant because it reminds us that we all come from God. We are all intimately connected through our human parents to Adam, to being created in the image of God. It reminds us that God is the ultimate father of all creation and all life, and that God's image is passed down from generation to generation. After Adam is listed in this report, nine sons are listed after him. And in each case, except for Enoch, Lamech, and Noah, the same formulaic information is presented. One they present the age of the, of the individual patriarch when he fathers his firstborn son. Number two, the remaining years of his life. Number three, the acknowledgement that he had other sons and daughters. Number four, the total years of his life. And number five, the notice of his death. So those are a part of almost all of the men who are listed here in chapter five. So the first man ever created, who was it? Adam. Very good. So, let's catch up in chapter 3, our verse 3 of chapter 5, and it says this, "...when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years." And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Do you see the formula of how Adam's uh, life and uh, years and children is presented? That one through five I just said, that's presented here. So Adam receives a son from the Lord, and of course Eve, and names him Seth. Now we studied that at length last week. Seth's birth reminds Adam and us that even though Adam fell in the garden that God still fulfilled his word that he would bless Adam and his line that humanity would continue on even though now we live in sin that God would bless man to procreate and populate the earth verse 3 says that Adam or that Seth is made in Adam's likeness well what does that mean what does it mean to be in Adam's likeness This indicates the perpetuation of God's blessing upon all who came after Adam, both men and women. It's indication of the perpetuation of being made in God's image. Genesis 1.26 talks about this. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth it also can, it also indicates something else seth is not only made in god's image he's also someone that comes from adam and so he also inherits adam's sin and so two things are perpetuated in all of humanity after adam one being made in the image of God. And we talked about our value in God's eyes and and all that, so I'm not going to go over that again this week. But the second thing that we see is we also receive um, the sin that Adam has inside of him from his fall in the garden, and that perpetuates down through humanity as well. Both of those things move through our genealogical lines. So Seth is not created or formed like Adam. Seth is fathered by Adam. So Seth perpetuates the blessing given to humanity by God to be made in his image, but he also perpetuates innate sinfulness and its consequence, which is death. Matthews writes, The ongoing tension between the blessing of the imago Dei, or being made in the image of God, and the unlawful attempt of humanity to achieve more than God intended, is the theological undercurrent of this genealogy. Verse 5 is a stark reminder of the consequence of Adam and Eve's sin. Even though Seth's family line worshiped the Lord, they continued to endure the consequence of Adam's sin, which is death. The phrase, quote, and he died, concludes each genealogical description in this chapter. Adam and Died in verse 5. Seth died in verse 8. Enosh died in verse 11. Kenan died in verse 14. Mahalalel in verse 17. Jared in verse 20. Enoch didn't die. We'll talk about that. Methuselah died in verse 27. Lamech, verse 31. And Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verse 29. That's a lot of death. That is a reminder of the consequence of sin, specifically the fall in the garden. The consequence of eating the fruit was what? Death. Death. Now, we realize now that was both physical and spiritual in nature. Thank the Lord for Jesus. Death is an unescapable reality for all people everywhere. No matter what differences we have, death will come for all of us one day. Worse yet, our death will end our life on this earth and usher. All humans into an eternity during which we will receive the wrath of God for our sins. What on earth are we to do? What will we do about this death and the separation from God? What will we do with our sin? We can't make up for it ourselves. There's no amount of good works that can heal the infinite uh, broken relationship with God. Well, the good news is there is nothing to do. There's something to receive. What is that, I wonder? Thank you very much, Miss Bim. It is Jesus. It's described here in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. Now, I love this passage because Paul talks about what Jesus did as a result of Adam's sin. So he kind of brings everything together that we see in the garden. Ready? Gen- Romans 5, 18-21. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted in condemnation for all men. Now, whose transgression resulted in condemnation for all men? Adam's, right? Adam's transgression, Adam and Eve's transgression in the garden, condemned all people that would come after them. So let's go on. Even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, whose one act of righteousness brought life? Jesus, giving his life on the cross. One act of righteousness. All right, let's keep going. Verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, who is that? Adam. The many were made sinners, that's you and I, and all humanity, even so through the obedience of the one, The many were made righteous. Who is the one? Jesus. Good. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So praise the Lord for Jesus. It's like when we study Genesis, the first few chapters of Genesis, it really brings to mind what God did for us through Jesus, right? We see the fall, and then immediately Adam's firstborn son kills the nextborn son. Literally, one there's sin. And literally, in the very next generation, the ultimate consequence of that sin, murder, is happening. And so we're devastated. And we realize this is nothing... Think about it this way. I've heard missionaries share stories about when they go um, and share with the people who have never heard the gospel, they oftentimes will start and they they do this thing called Bible story. So they have a big blanket and it's got pictures on it. And every picture is a big event in the Bible. And so basically they take them th- from Genesis through to Jesus, and they'll point at the picture and be like, okay, this is Adam and Eve, and, and God created them, and they'll walk through, kind of like I do with a diagram, only with pictures. And um, they, they hear about Genesis, and they hear about the fall, and they hear about how that devastated man and brought death, And they hear about how that separated them from God. And I've heard from missionaries that say, once they hear that, they will weep because they recognize that there's nothing they can do. They literally will weep. And then they get to Jesus. And and they introduce Jesus as the one God sent to be the Savior. And then they shout. They don't just like receive it with joy. They shout for joy like, thank you, Lord, there's someone that's been sent to save us, and then they move through, and then oftentimes they'll receive Jesus as their Lord. And so I think studying Genesis, especially the first couple chapters here, reminds us about how devastated we were as humanity, how separated from God we really were. So amen, and thank you, Lord, for him and what he did. So let's move on in our genealogy here, now we're going to talk about the, the part of this passage, verse 6 through 20. This is Seth through Jared. Little is known, very, very little is known about Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, and Jared. In fact, their names are only mentioned in the Bible in reference to genealogical lists. So I'm going to read this text for you, and then we'll, we'll talk about a couple things in regard to that. It says, Seth lived 105 years, and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived eight hundred and seven years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were nine hundred and twelve years, and he died. Enosh lived ninety years, and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived eight hundred and fifteen years after he became the father of Kenan, and had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were nine hundred and five years, and he died. "'Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. "'Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel, "'and he had other sons and daughters. "'So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. "'Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. "'Then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, "'and he had other sons and daughters.' So, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years, and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. The first thing, one of the first things you probably notice while reading this particular text, is the incredibly long lives that these men lived. That's a long time. 900, over 900 years old. Now those living before the flood, or scholars would say antediluvian, the antediluvian period is a period from creation all the way up to the flood. Antediluvian. They lived uh, generally between 700 and 900 years. They lived much longer than those who existed after the flood, or post-Diluvians, post-Diluvians, um, that, uh, after Genesis chapter 10, that quickly descended to 200 years, and then 100 plus years by the time of Jacob. So the question is, why did their years of life decrease? Now, Doug, go ahead. Okay, sin. So the, the world became uh, much more impacted by sin. I do believe in the, the exponential multiplication of the effects of sin on the world for sure. Anybody else heard a theory? So there's a few out there. Um, there's a great article, by the way, in Answers in Genesis. Some people say, well, it was at the, you know, the flood, after the flood when people really started eating meat and that decreased their life. Others say, well, the environment because of the flood, a lot of things... In God's creation changed, all of those are are possible. Um, and then there's one particular theory that the answers in Genesis people believe, and they they believe that that genetics was influenced after the flood. Because if you think about it, who from whom was everyone uh, birthed after the flood? Noah's three sons, right? So the genetic code was kind of was uh, decreased. On top of that, you have what Doug said, which is the effects of sin on humanity. So their theory is that um, there are probably things passed on in that, um, that slimmed-down genetic code that drastically influenced humanity and uh, the length of our lives. The, the answer from, a, from just focusing on Scripture is only the Lord knows why the ages of people decrease. The Bible doesn't tell us why it decreased. It did tell us that sin increased uh, over time, and we know that that happens, um, but we don't know, we don't really know why. Uh, So I just like to ask those kind of questions because, you know, we should be able to ask questions when we study the Bible, right? There's no shame in asking God for answers. So we'll move on. Now we're going to talk about Enoch. Enoch is probably one of the most interesting men in the Old Testament, right? Do you all know what's interesting about Enoch? Enoch? We're gonna find out. Did you Did you say something, Bim? Do you want? He didn't die. He didn't die. That's right. He's one of two mentioned the Bible who didn't die. Who's the other one? Elijah. Yep, Darlene. You get a lollipop. Miss Bim gets a lollipop. I'm gonna give one to Mister Ed because he helped answer Miss Bim. So we got three coming. You guys just write them down. We're coming out. All right. Let's look at this text, chapter five, verse twenty one. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. What in the world? He walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. What an interesting Bible passage. Enoch didn't just live for a certain number of years and father specific children. The passage uniquely states that Enoch walked with God 300 years. All the other passages, when you read them in this chapter, it just says this person lived so many years, had children, you know, and then lived a certain number of years after the firstborn and then died. Enoch, however, says he walked with God 300 years. His relationship God, with God must have been something really, really special for Moses to have noted this about his life. In fact, Enoch's walk with God is the reason why he didn't die. The Hebrew words, the specific Hebrew words Moses chose for this passage describe Enoch's walking with God indicate that he had a special communion with God, a special intimacy with God. This description of Enoch's life Is similar to Adam's relationship with God before the fall and Noah's relationship with God before the flood. So, what happened to Enoch? Well, what's the Bible say? Verse 24, he was not, for God took him. Of all the Old Testament saints, as you all noticed, Enoch and Elijah are the only two that didn't uh, experience physical death. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to refer to a well known theologian, John Calvin. He says, All are indeed taken out of the world by death. But Moses plainly declares that Enoch was taken out of the world by an unusual mode and was received by the Lord in a miraculous manner. For laka, that's the Hebrew word used there, among the Hebrews, signifies to take to oneself as well as simply to take. But without insisting on the word, it suffices to hold fast the thing itself. Namely, that Enoch in the middle period of life, suddenly and in unexampled method, vanished from the sight of men because the Lord took him away. As we read, was also done with respect to Elijah. What does that sound like? Someone being here and then all of a sudden being taken away by God. The rapture. There are even scholars that believe, you know, that the proper, uh, the proper Greek word to use in this passage in the Greek Old Testament, uh, the Septuagint, should be the word they use for that in the New Testament being taken up that we see in Thessalonians. So... Um, Really interesting. He was, and then God took him. And that word in Hebrew literally just means he was here, and then God just like snatched him up and took him to be with him. Hebrews 11.5 clarifies this event. It says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. So he lived a life, walked with God. God wanted him with him in heaven, so he took him that would be a pretty awesome way to go, right? What do you think it was like for Enoch? I wonder if it was not quite so strange because his walk with the Lord was so strong that, you know, he would have been in the presence of God and be like, perfect. This is what I'm looking forward to. Anyway, that's all conjecture. Now, how do we apply this part to our own lives? We can walk with God just like Adam, Enoch, and Noah. Did you know that? Our lives can be described as so-and-so, Jeannie, Doug, Darlene, Siri, lived 55 years and walked with God. You know, that could be your life. And I think it is for many of you. T.J. Cole writes this, The finality of death caused by sin and so powerfully demonstrated in the genealogy of Genesis is in fact not so final. Man was not born to die, he was born to live. And that life comes by walking with God. Walking with God is the key to the chains of the curse. I don't know if there's a better passage in the New Testament to describe what God did for us through Jesus in respect to being made into a new person. Then 2 Corinthians 5 17 through 21. Listen to this passage. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us. The ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The power of death and the chains of sin that we were entangled with, that we inherited from our father Adam, have been broken through Jesus. And when we turn from our sin and trust in Him, we're made into a new creature, a new creation What was Adam before he sinned? A new creation. Pure and perfect and righteous. That term that Paul uses there in that letter to the Corinthians is is supposed to point them back to what Adam was before he sinned. We're, We're made into that through Jesus. So when God sees us, He sees the righteousness of Christ applied to us. And that relationship that Adam had with God before he fell in the garden is available to us through Christ. We too can walk with God. Just like Enoch. What about Methuselah? What's special about Methuselah? Does anybody know? Oldest living person, oldest recorded life in the Bible. Look at verse 25. Methuselah lived 187 years and he became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. That's a long time to live. That's all we know about Methuselah. (laughs) He's mentioned in other places, but he's always mentioned in a genealogical line. But he does have that title, and I'm sure he wears it proudly. Let's move on to Lamech, verse 28. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. And now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah And had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Lamech were seven hundred and seventy-seven years, and he died. So Lamech obviously had faith in God and and cried out to God for hope and help, and named Noah his gave Noah his name for that particular reason, because he believed that the hope for rest and for humanity resided in Noah, and it did in fact reside in Noah. Imagine during Lamech's life, that is the tail end of of creation before the flood when things were getting really, really bad. So bad, in fact, that God's wrath is stored up and very soon He's going to destroy the living things on the earth aside from what was put on the ark. And so even Lamech, you can see in this text, he's burdened with what the world has become. And so he lays his hope in his son Noah and hoping that God would do something through him. Verse 32 continues, Noah was 500 years old and he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now we're going to study Noah at length in the next few chapters in Genesis, so I won't do that tonight. But a brief description here tells us some important things about Noah and his sons. Shem is listed first and thus he probably was Noah's firstborn son. We learn in Genesis 9, 26 and 27 that he was also Noah's favorite son. Shem is the one from whom the Israelite people would come. So all of Israel came from Shem. Ham is the youngest son and the one who disgraced Noah after the flood. Ham's family line became Israel's enemies. You can see that in Genesis 10, verses 6 through 20. Japheth is the middle son. Noah prays that the Lord will enlarge his lands, but that's really all we know about him. So what do we do? with a genealogical line like this? What, is, what does that mean to us? How does that influence our lives? I want to just give you two things that I'm going to close. So, Miss Bim, you can make your way up to the piano there and we'll get ready to close here. The first thing we can learn and apply to our lives is that the way we live influences generations of people after us. Noah sinned, and you know the rest after that, How will you influence generations that come after you? What will you be known for? Now, this doesn't necessarily have to do with you personally and your children, although it certainly can mean that. But here in this church, we have children running around here all over the place. And we, as the ones above them, a generation above, had an opportunity to influence them to share the gospel with them, to help them grow in their faith with the Lord. And so we can see that older generations influence younger generations. And as they grow up, the influence you had on that generation is going to influence the way they uh, behave around the next generation. We've done now, uh, I've done two, two weekends of funerals. Um, first, uh, Celebration of Life with for Miss Paulina, and then now Miss Martha here on Saturday. And one thing that I've seen as I've talked with family and had people share testimonies is, you know, once we pass away, we do leave things behind. And so as I've heard people talk about each of those ladies, um, it made me wonder, what will I leave behind when I'm gone? And I pray, I pray that we will leave behind a strong testimony for Jesus. And that people will remember that and be influenced by it. The second thing is that we will the question is, will we use the opportunity to walk with God? You know, one thing I shared yesterday at the funeral is that Jesus came and he described in that in that passage in Luke 4 where he stands up in Nazareth and the synagogue there and he says, You know, I've come to to free the oppressed, to, to set people free, to give sight to the blind. I'm here for the poor. And when he said those things, he was, he was describing who he was as a Messiah. And at the very end, he said, now is the favorable year or season of the Lord. And we're living in that time right now. Unlike any other time in history, the point when Jesus came and died and rose again from that point on until he returns, is this incredibly favorable season where God's opened up the doors of salvation. That means all who hear the gospel and receive Jesus, they'll be saved. Not just Jew, but Jew and Gentile. All people all over the world. So we have this incredible opportunity, unlike anybody before Jesus came, to walk with God in a very unique way. The question is, will we walk with God? I'm going to pray now, and then we're going to sing a song of invitation and have a time to worship God before we close. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time, for giving us this genealogical record, which oftentimes we read right over, but deep buried inside of this is some theological truth that I pray will impact our hearts and change our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.